This is episode 72 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Meredith Oki Ashford. She obtained her bachelor's degree from the University of Georgia and master's degree from Vanderbilt University. She has several years of experience working as an SLP at Vanderbilt University Medical Center as the lead SLP for both geriatric and the palliative care teams. Meredith has special interests in the assessment and treatment of dysphagia, collaboration with families and patient care, and teaching. She's a co-instructor of the dysphagia course at Vanderbilt and is a regular speaker at interdisciplinary meetings. And I promised our friend Meredith here, and also our we had a former presenter, um, Carmen Barto. She talked to us all about forming a trach team a few episodes back. She's just wonderful, too. Um, but they both work at Vanderbilt, and I promised them that I would mention their upcoming conference. It's called the 4th Annual Medical Speech Pathology Best Practices Conference, February 22nd, 23rd at the Hilton Garden Inn in Nashville, Tennessee. And to register, you can go to vanderbilt.edu forward slash continuing education. And Meredith's going to talk a little bit more about it in the segment. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, Meredith. Hello, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Meredith Oki Ashford. I'm a speech pathologist in the acute care setting at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm the co-instructor of the graduate dysphagia course there. I teach the classes on normal geriatric swallow and neurogenic dysphagia, as well as swallowing function at the end of life. Also a clinical instructor to our graduate students in the acute care setting. And I'm also uh, the overseer of our fees program, meaning that I train our new staff as well as have the much less glamorous task of keeping our equipment in compliance with joint commission regulations. And it's a great place to work. Yeah, so also, if I can for a quick second, I just wanted to plug a conference that we've got coming up. So we have our fourth annual Best Practices and Medical Speech Pathology Conference coming up, Vanderbilt. It's the last weekend of February, February 22nd and 23rd, 2019, and it's in Nashville. And it's sort of the for Medical Speech Pathologists by Medical Speech Pathologists Conference. Um, and we've gotten really good feedback on years past. And we've got an excellent guest speaker this year. Kate Hutchison is going to come and talk to us about dysphagia and head and neck cancer patients. So if anybody's interested, we would love to have you here in Nashville. Awesome. That sounds like a wonderful, wonderful course. I hope it will be. I think it should be. <laughs> All right. So let me back you up a tiny bit, Meredith. I just love in your bio, you were saying that so you are the co-instructor for your dysphagia course. Yeah, so the, we've got an um, instructor on record, um, and then there's a couple of us that help co-instruct, meaning that we take on a couple of the classes for our own and, and help out through the semester. That's awesome. I feel like that's almost like how all dysphagia courses should be, because I feel <laughs> like there's always there's always like so many, you know, the professors are like, the course is exhausting. There's so much material. I can't cover it all. I only specialize in this. And 
I need to find somebody to specialize in this. And, you know, then the students are like, well, our professor only cared about pediatric <laughs> swallowing. So that's all we got. So I love hearing that you guys have so many different, you know, dynamic personalities that can chime in there. Oh, well, thank you. We really enjoy it. It seems to work for us. Good. And also you guys have fees. Yes. Yeah. Vanderbilt is a, it's a big hospital. It's a 900 plus bed hospital with several ICUs. And we keep our fluoro suite very busy and our fees cart running pretty much all day. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So I, I actually meant, so do you guys do fees for the Vanderbilt grad program? Oh, sorry. So I oversee the fees program for the acute care division. Of- gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But we also, I do also teach a lab on fees. For- oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Is that like a one credit course type thing? Oh, no, it's just one of the classes. It's one of the... Oh, gotcha. Okay. We do a lab and we go to the floor suite, we try barium, and then we bring the fees card in and we play with that. And we talk about the applications of fees versus videos and get get really down to the the practical nitty gritty stuff. Oh, awesome. I love it. That must be why all the Vanderbilt kids are always so smart. (laughs) (laughs) They come pretty smart when they show up. Oh, good, 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 good. And quick, while we're talking about fees, I just want to, again, give a huge, gigantic thank you to our sponsor, NDOHD. I don't know that I thank you guys enough for your support with the show and keeping this going. So um, aside from my normal little blurb that I read, I just wanted to say off the cuff, thank you, thank you, thank you to NDOHD.com for, or NDOHD.com, NDOHD for um, all of their support of this podcast. And you can check them out at NDOHD.com forward slash contact. Uh, but they are a true high definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. It can be a case portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. Uh, additionally, NDOHD reps can help clinicians set up their fees program. So contact them at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. All right. So what are we going to talk about today, Meredith? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really want to talk with you today about the hows and the whys of speech pathologists as members of palliative care teams. Which is awesome. Really, really I love passionate it. About. Yeah. So that is to say why no interdisciplinary palliative care team is complete without a speech pathologist and also how we can refine our practice to be meaningful contributors to palliative care teams. So of course, participating in these teams is for the betterment of our patients with life-limiting illnesses. All right. I love it. Yeah. So maybe before I get started, I should sort of define palliative versus hospice care. Would that be helpful? Yeah, very much so. Okay, great. So so I think that it can be tempting to want to use palliative and hospice um, as interchangeable terms, but in fact, they're really different things. You know, hospice care is actually a sort of philosophy or way of practicing in which we care for dying patients. It can be done either in a standalone hospice or in home hospice or in a nursing home that has hospice unit. Um, and of course, hospice has been around for, for centuries. Whereas palliative care is a, is a newer phenomenon, and it's a more general term, meaning the way that we care for patients who are seriously ill. So it's the kind of care that improves the quality of life for patients and their families when they're facing a problem that is life-limiting, meaning that it is presumed that the patient's death will eventually come as a result of that serious illness. All right. So um, hospice is a a part of palliative care, but palliative care doesn't necessarily mean 
that a patient is imminently dying, it can be for any patient who's, who's facing a serious illness. All right. Well, thank you for clearing that up. I think that's a huge misconception. Yeah. So when I, when I mean hospice, I'll say hospice. And when I mean palliative care, more generally, I'll, I'll use that term specifically tonight. Awesome. Yeah. So I feel like we have these really well-established relationships with neurology and ENT, but with palliative care, since it's a newer area of medicine, we're still trying to figure out how much involvement we should have with them or what exactly they need from us and what we can get out of working with them. You know, I mean, I think there are some hospitals that have decades long um, relationships with neurology or ENT departments, but since palliative care departments sometimes are, are less than 10 years old in some hospitals, um, we, we're still trying to, to figure out how we can contribute to those teams. Yeah, I feel like there's just even so many like SLPs that are trying to get palliative care programs started in their facilities because they realize how, you know, valuable it can be. Right, right. Well, so when I first joined my acute care team 10 years ago, I was hired primarily to work with internal medicine or geriatric service. And at Vanderbilt, our palliative care team originally had a really close relationship with our geriatrics team. So I got to know them and see how they were caring for their patients in that way. And especially over the past five years, I've worked a lot more with our palliative care team. And it seems to me that speech pathologists and palliative care physicians and nurse practitioners are just really natural allies. You know, they have this wonderful focus on patient-centered care and on quality of life. And as SLPs, those are two things that we're really good at. I mean, I think that we know how to make our patients' goals our goals. And we know that eating and talking are just so, so important to quality of life. And so when it comes to treating these patients with life-limiting illnesses who also have moderately severe to severe dysphagia, our work together is just imperative. Yep. Yeah. I think one of my most favorite episodes that we've done was with Dr. Madison Mock. He's a critical care pulmonologist, and he said that you know, physicians and SLP should go together like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> and I, I just really love the way I, he respected our field so much and just how we should work so closely together. And I was like, why doesn't everybody feel this way? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I totally do. Totally yeah. do. Especially when it's, you know, when it's somebody that is talking to patients about eating and drinking, they need to know what it is that we have to contribute to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the ways that I've sort of structured my way of thinking about it is thinking about how I can help patients and palliative care teams when I'm assessing the patient and when I'm treating the patient. So in assessing the patients, I sort of had this eureka moment early in my practice, probably two or three years in, when I was working with this elderly man. It seems like it was late on a Friday afternoon. It seems like everything that goes wrong on a Friday afternoon and he was the gentleman that came in from a skilled nursing facility and had a urinary tract infection and was a little bit delirious. You know, we've all met him, right? The, yeah, yep. And he was having subsequent dysphagia. And because of the fact that his, his dementia was pretty advanced, I wasn't really sure what direction he would go in. Is this the kind of guy that his family would really want the aggressive course of treatment and that they would want the Dobhoff tubes to sustain him and give him his medications? Or were they the kind of family that was really, at this point in his care, more focused on his comfort and that they wanted to, you know, really prefer the Dobhoff tube, gasperate it a little, then that was a risk that they were willing to accept as long as he kept 
putting to eat because that was something we enjoyed. So when I wrote my assessment, wrote two sets of goals, a set of goals that was more focused on more aggressive rehabilitation and more medical focus, and then a set of goals that was more focused on comfort care. So, you know, NPO, Dabhoff too, or if you have to, meds, crushed, and applesauce, and very small amounts, ice chips maybe for comfort. Then, you know, a set that was more focused on comfort, which was like, okay, well, maybe we just go with pureed foods. And actually, he does seem to cough less with necrophic liquids. And can you please sit him upright and reduce the distractions and give him small bites and, you know, monitor his lungs, that sort of thing. So I didn't, I wrote a set of recommendations for, for comfort that were still trying to minimize the amount of aspiration that he, he would incur if he was going to eat and drink. And so as I've gone around and talked about that way of providing sort of a dual set or these nuanced recommendations, I found that there are other speech pathologists who have also had the same Eureka moment. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> where they realize that maybe their patients don't necessarily want to have a Dobhoff tube or maybe they don't want to have a peg tube. And I think that, you know, it's really important for us to not assume that our patients are going to want a feeding tube when we're writing recommendations for patients who have moderately severe to severe dysphagia. That if we're going to say that they need tube feeding, we can provide an alternative set of recommendations if they don't want to. In that way, we can take our own bias out of our recommendations. So I think that that really helps make it a more ethical set of recommendations. Absolutely. You're providing um, patients with options to know that they don't have to do the most aggressive medical thing. And in that way, you're giving them permission to say no. If you've given them another option, then maybe feel more affirmed in saying, I don't really want that for me, or I don't necessarily want that for my mom. Whereas if you only provide one, one recommendation, you know, let's put a tube in her then I think it's harder for a family member to say, that's not really what I want for my loved one. Yeah. I think what I love too is you hear stories of SLPs or doctors or patients saying, you know, well, the patient said that they didn't want to follow their recommendations. So we just discharge them and, you know, they can do what they want now. And I don't know that that's the best way to go about it either. You know, it's like we, we do have valuable things that we can contribute and they may not exactly as you said they may not want this most aggressive treatment approach but it doesn't mean we should abandon them completely when we still can do have a huge role in comfort care right absolutely so that kind of takes me then to the treatment side of things so if a patient says that they don't want the tube feeding then we can still help them right they still have moderately severe to severe dysphagia and they still need a speech therapist to help guide them through that process I mean, I think that inherently, if it were our family member, we would know what to do and how to feed the patient, but that's not necessarily instinctive for all people. And to even just be there to guide them through one meal, show them some tips some strategies that, look, it looks like their head is a little too hyperextended. Let's just put a pillow behind their head. Or you see that she swallowed, that's what a swallow looks like. Now you know that it's time for another bite. You know, just, just even simple things to help family members get through meal times can help totally reduce their stress in what can otherwise be just a painful process watching their loved one ask. Yeah, absolutely. And what I think so much too, is I think of like these patients that end up do having like spontaneous recovery. And, you know, in this case, we're still involved in the case. 
So, you know, should spontaneous recovery occur or should the patient have a change of heart and decide they do want this aggressive treatment plan, we're there. As opposed to, I feel like sometimes these patients just almost get brushed aside and then a year or two down the road, somebody finds them and they're like, why the heck are you still on this restricted diet? And it's like, oh, because I, you know, didn't want to follow their recommendations. And, you know, so they just never followed back up with me before. So, yes, absolutely. And so we're seeing palliative care, too, then in in the skilled nursing facilities where we're, we're getting that sort of time trial. Patients go to skilled nursing facilities. And on a limited time trial, then palliative care is still involved and the speech therapist then can have the role in talking with palliative care of, of seeing what exactly is going on with the patient. Are they in fact getting better or maybe are they declining a little bit and, and we need to start revisiting the idea of hospice care as well. Yeah. So it can be important to work with palliative care in the acute care setting when you're first sort of assessing what's going on with the patient and then also and the skilled nursing facility when there's that limited time trial and we're trying to help the patient. And then in hospice care, if the patient actually does go to hospice, that's where it gets a little bit trickier logistically because of the per diem, hospices don't really have a lot of extra funds to give to rehab services. And I think that's probably the major reason why rehab services are excluded from hospice. It's not necessarily about the philosophy of, you know, of, of caring for the patient. I think that really palliative care physicians would love to have rehab services in helping the patients as much as they can. It really boils down to, to the brass tacks, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I know that some speech therapists are getting access to patients in hospice care, but we don't necessarily need to see them ad nauseum like we do some of our other patients, but maybe just, you know, again, one of those one or two sessions where we help families or nursing staff figure out how to feed the patient in a tricky situation and then we can back out. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that because I feel like that's another polarizing issue. Some people say, oh, we're not allowed to help hospice patients. And then there's, you know, other SLPs that say, oh, I always am involved in my hospice cases. So, you know, thank you for clearing that up because I know that we can play a role with hospice. It's just some agencies don't want us to or don't allow us to or yeah. Right. And so I try to think then about how, how I could help those patients that are in hospice, even if I'm not going to be seeing them for lengthy periods of time. Maybe that you can provide nursing in services, like maybe you work in a facility where you have some hospice beds, and so you can give education to the, the caregivers and the care partners that are actually there to take care of the patients, even if you can't really be there to help them. Or can you help the, inform the patients and their families about kind of what to expect in advance of them actually getting to those those final days and how they can maybe help feed their patient or help alleviate them from their guilt of I'm not feeding my mom, she's starving to death, yeah. which is not not helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So where to next? So another thing that kind of irks me in the hospital is when a patient chooses that they, they don't want to feed and that they're going to focus on is when you see that regular texture diet order go in. Oh, it just, just kills me sometimes because if I have a patient who I know isn't going to be able to do anything with a regular texture diet, you know, I will really do my best to try to stay involved and get that diet modified if I think that it's what the patient is going to be able to employ. Just last week, I had a patient who I went into 
go see for a swallowing evaluation immediately behind the palliative care team. They had just decided that really the patient needed to focus on, on comfort and the family was supportive of that. And it really didn't have anything to do with their swallowing. It actually had to do with the other chronic disease processes that the patient had going on, which he then had a stroke on top of. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So as I came in to do the swallowing evaluation, I saw that he was really choking on thin liquids. Choking on thin liquids doesn't feel good at all. You know, that's that's very uncomfortable in and of itself. So in this particular case, the guy preferred thick liquids. Of course, I talked to the family about the fact that maybe in a few days, he'll stop choking on the thin liquids and he'll want those again, in which case they can switch back to the thin liquids. Right now, here's how you can thicken his liquids so that he can enjoy them more without the coughing and the choking. So that was a really meaningful conversation for them so that they kind of saw how to get through at least the next couple of days and then maybe even longer than that, just depending on how his dysphagia changed. Yeah. I, I love that you said that because I know so many times we harp on, you know, get away from the thickened liquids. We want our patients on thin, but for some of these patients, they're just more dang comfortable on the thickened. You know, I mean, it's not comfortable to be coughing constantly, 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 constantly. So, you know, if if this is an instance that Thick and liquids are going to be more comfortable for the patient, then heck, we got to try it. Right, absolutely. Or if you have that patient who, you know, gets really easily fatigued, then they don't necessarily want a regular texture diet. They may prefer the dysphagia too or the casserole sort of texture, uh, maybe more enjoyable to them. Yeah. And then the one other tidbit that I've sort of picked up along the way that's been really helpful to me is sort of is to think about when the patient is no longer eating and drinking. Because sometimes you'll go in with your thought of, oh, I'm going to go and train this family and the patient will have declined and the family is still looking at you like, you know, we were supposed to talk about swallowing today. Now what? And so in instances like that, I fall back on oral moisture and oral hygiene. And so in that particular case, I'll talk about, well, let's grab the biotine. Oh, let's find whatever oral moisturizer your, your facility has get the oral swabs. I'll show them how, um, how to apply oral moisture to an oral swab, how to swipe around the patient's mouth, how to perform oral hygiene on another adult. This is such an abstract, uncomfortable feeling for people that aren't speech pathologists. Yes. So, so showing a family yeah. member how, how to help their loved one in that way, I think is, is really helpful. And also a lesson that I love to give people in advance of, of a decline that I know is coming. So even if the patient isn't necessarily at that point, and even if I'm not saying to the family member, this is what you're going to do right at the end, I'll just go ahead and show them how to apply that oral moisturizer, how to apply that oral hygiene. So they sort of have that tool in their tool belt later on when they need it. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. That's such an interesting point about trying to brush somebody else's teeth. (laughs) I guess I think about just trying to hold down my two-year-old and brush his teeth, and that's always <laughs> quite a feat. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm sure it is difficult to you know, try to brush a loved one's but Right, exactly. So palliative care teams, I think, are, are great in hospitals in that you know, they really help in the consult services to help families sort of define these goals of care and to figure out what exactly it is that they want, especially if there's lots of cooks in the kitchen, if there's lots of family members, 
who were involved. And I think that speech therapists sometimes identify those needs, maybe even before the primary teams do. So one of the ways that we can be great collaborators with these teams is to maybe help them identify when they need a palliative care consult. So I um, know that I've helped um, teams realize before when they needed a palliative care consult, um, if I heard the patient say to me, I would not want a feeding tube, and then I heard their wife say, oh, yes, you would. <laughs> so I know that that's when I see those sort of discrepancies happening, that'll raise a red flag for me to know that maybe that's the time that we need to step in and say, hey, can you talk about a palliative care consult to help the family define what their goals of care are here? So when I started doing these dual set of recommendations, I sort of did them trying to feel them out in my own practice for a while. And then after I had been doing it more consistently, I actually went to our palliative care team and said, hey, I wanted you guys to know this is how I'm writing my set, my recommendations now. Sort of raised their awareness of the fact that I was doing these dual set of recommendations. And when they saw my notes and they saw that I was doing this, they, they of course thought that it was really helpful. And so I know that they've taken some of those recommendations into their family care planning meetings to say, all right, I know that we've got some difficult decisions to make. Just so you know, if you don't necessarily want the tube feeding, here's another option. Here's something else. Does this seem maybe like something your mom would want? So that there's, there's a good plan for them as well. And I think that with eating and drinking, it's, it provides such tangible options. Sometimes in the medical world, especially if you're working with patients and families, born as medically literate, can become so abstract and tangential. And having just sort of the thought of, okay, well, maybe your mom can eat food that's been through the blender, or, you know, you can feed her just in small amounts, even if a little bit goes into her lungs, it might be something that she enjoys. That can be so helpful for families to have those, those sort of concrete ideas laid out for them. Yeah, that's such a good point too. Okay, so another thought that I had had about recommendations for peg tubes is, is I'm trying to make a really conscientious effort to only make recommendations for long-term alternate nutrition for a peg tube, that is, when I know that it's something that could be beneficial to the patient. So, you know, we've got some pretty solid evidence now about who benefits from having a peg tube and who doesn't. And I think that when I was a young clinician first starting out, that I really felt like, you know, you have that sort of save the world mentality. Yep. <laughs> every patient. And so if a patient couldn't swallow, I was recommending long-term alternate nutrition probably on too many people. But now that I understand that some patients are not going to benefit from long-term alternate nutrition, I've tried to make a conscientious effort to not mince words in the assessment portion and in the recommendation portion of the reports that I write from fees or from videos or even from clinical swallow studies. So if I know that a patient is aspirating and will likely continue to aspirate and won't benefit from that, from that long-term alternate nutrition, I'll actually say in my recommendations, consider in-depth conversation about goals of care, possible comfort feeding, and light of poor prognosis and the results of the assessment. I think that it can be really hard to write those things and to know that that's the direction that your patients might, might be going in but that you're not doing anybody any favors by saying that, by trying to recommend tube feeding when it's not really a viable option for a patient. Yeah. And, and I, I think what I love most about this entire conversation is really just that it's a really broad discussion. Like we're just looking at the patient as a whole at all the goals of care. 
I think sometimes, you know, when we have these big conflicts in our profession is, you know, the person that's just doing the modified or just doing the fees and sees just consistent aspiration over and over and over. So they just recommend alternate means of nutrition. But really, have they had the conversation with the patient and the family? Is this something that they would even remotely consider? Or do they have alternate goals of care? So I think that's what I love about this conversation most is that it's such a big picture and there's so many more pieces to the puzzle other than just this one little narrow portion. Right. It's absolutely considering the whole patient as it were. Yeah. As I've had these conversations with speech therapists across the countries and conferences that I've gone and talked to and everything, I found that there's a lot of fear about talking to patients about their goals of care and about whether or not they would want a tube. And I don't necessarily think that it's fear from the speech therapist about having the conversation, but maybe fear about pushback from the providers that you've perhaps overstepped your bounds in having those conversations. Well, I do think it's important for us to know what the boundaries are of what we can discuss and to go ahead and have some maybe scripted phrases in place for when we, when we need to stop that conversation. I also think it's definitely in our wheelhouse to go ahead and at least open the door to that conversation, figure out where your patient is, if they're even on the same page with you about their dysphagia and about where they're going with their nutrition. What I found is that I've had these, as I've had these conversations in the hospital with my patients, and then I've gone back and told the providers that I've had these conversations, they're so glad that I've gone ahead and and breached the topic. And usually they say, okay, what'd they say? (laughs) Yeah. Like, all right, where are we? Yeah. And then they're happy to follow up on that conversation too. I think what it does also is just almost opens the door. You know, so we may not know what the best decision should be or what the patient or what the family is going to decide or what ultimately the doctor might recommend. But I think just kind of almost putting the bug in the ear and saying, you know, this is kind of where we are at. And then I think once you kind of leave the room, then the patient and the family can really talk amongst themselves and, and get clear on what they want so that when the doctor does come in, they're able to have that conversation. Right. So usually when I broach that topic, I'll say, you know, this is something that we're going to need to talk about with your doctors, but at this point, it may be that you need an alternate form of nutrition, like a tube to help sustain your nutrition and your hydration right now, because I can see that you're not going to be able to get that by eating and drinking. And so we're definitely going to need to bring in your doctor on this conversation to find out if that's even something that you're medically ready for. Before I go and I talk to your doctor, I'd like to hear from you. Can you tell me how you feel about having a tube for your nutrition? Awesome. I love it. Yeah. So when I'm training my students in the acute care setting, I really try to include them in my my thought processes and working with these patients who have life-limiting illnesses and severe dysphagia. I think it can be really tempting to want to leave out our students from these serious conversations that we have with our patients that we can be really easy to say to our, to, to our students, okay, I think that maybe you should wait here. I'm going to go and talk to Ms. Smith because it's a really kind of delicate conversation. And I think that it's really important to bring our students in on those conversations because if they don't see it done, how are they ever going to know how to do it? And so in my palliative care patient in the classroom, I am teaching them about post forms, about advanced directives, and then in my clinical I'm teaching them 
more information about actually counseling the patients, how to have these difficult conversations, how to broach the topic, and where to know where your limits are in these conversations too. And I found that leaves them a bit more open-minded to working with these patients who have very serious illnesses, or other, as otherwise, it can be pretty intimidating to young clinicians to work with these patients because they they do come with not only challenges regarding uh, having to know your stuff about dysphagia and all the medical aspects of it, but also having to have really finely tuned counseling skills and and, and sort of the ability to finesse difficult social situations as well. Yeah, I feel like that's almost like one of the big complaints we hear nowadays with like new grads and CFs and even, you know, first, second year SLPs is like, well, how do I even have this conversation? Like I've never experienced a conversation like this. I wouldn't even know where to start, you know, where to dive in with the patient. So I think exactly as you said, I think it's so important for students to learn this early in their career. And I think it really just adds that human element to it too. You know, I think grad school can almost be so, you know, textbook, scientific, memorize all this, do all that. But when you add in the human element and realize that you're actually having a very, very large impact on your patient's life, I think it can really help. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. An article that I love um, is about the spikes protocol for delivering bad news, which comes out of the cancer research. And so it is the way that residents and medical students are trained on how to deliver bad news. And spikes is an acronym. It talks about S, which is setting, meaning you've got to find a good setting to have the conversation with your patient in. And then P is perception. That's where you ask the patient, what do you think is going on with your swallowing? I know that we had the swallow study yesterday. Tell me what you remember about it. What do you think is going on? And then, so I is invitation. And that's where you ask the patient for an invitation to tell them what you know about their swallowing. So that's where you say, well, if it's all right, I'd like to tell you what I found out from your swallow study yesterday and what I think is going on. Then K is knowledge. That's where you share with your patient and their family what it is that you know about your swallowing. And that's usually the bad news part. And it's okay if it's going to be pretty bad at the start of knowledge to say, well, this isn't good news. So that the patient isn't isn't sort of hanging hanging on until they find out if it's it's good or bad news or not. It's okay to just say at the beginning, this isn't going to be good news. And then E is emotion or empathy. It's where you allow the patient or their family space to sort of process what it is that they've been through, how it is that they're feeling. And then S is summarize and strategize. You sort of sum up the conversation, talk about you know, what, what all has been discussed and where you're going to go from there. Thank you for sharing that, Meredith. That was wonderful. Yeah, Absolutely. It's definitely helped me just sort of have a schema in my head of how yeah. these conversations, especially because they're so nerve wracking just to have have these conversations at all when you know that you're going to go in and have to break somebody's heart. Yeah, but yeah. It's good to have sort of a format in your head going in so that you you know that you've given it your best, that you've had a, an informed and cohesive conversation. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And it really is just so much in the delivery. It was like a few months back. I was going through some personal stuff and I had a doctor tell me like some really devastating news and I left there like really upset. But I remember like I came home and told my husband, I was like, but she said it, she like delivered it in like a really positive way. (laughs) (laughs) But like, 
I, I'll never forget that. Like, like as horrible as I felt with the devastating news, but then like it, the way she delivered it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was so admirable the way she handled that situation. So, and now I'm really wondering if this is almost the, the method that she used because it was so empathetic and well thought out and organized. And, and I, I've just, I always think of that conversation because I'm like, I wish I could just be able to deliver news that, that way. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's helpful. I think both for the patient and for the provider that's giving, that's giving the information to you. Yeah. Cause I think it's, you know, it's hard for us too, when we are delivering the news to keep our emotions in check. You know, I, I think sometimes we may think it's horrible, devastating news, but the patient may be ready to hear that. Or, you know, the patient may just be relieved to hear of an outcome. You know, right. Or it could be that when you ask for their perception of it, they already know everything you're about to tell them. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that point, you're you're on the same page and you're just strategizing. Yeah. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Meredith. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Is there anything else you want to cover? I think that's the, the gist of it. I'm sure I'll think of a billion things later as soon as we. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. So what do you, what, what kind of advice can you give to, you know, I know a lot of SLPs have thought about, well, I'd love to start a palliative care program at my hospital or at my SNF. What advice would you be for kind of the first steps to get that going? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that the first step is to try to consider um, various goals of care when you're writing your assessment recommendations. And then show that your palliative care, to your palliative care team that you've done that for them. <laughs> that you're helping them try to try to think about the patient as a whole and different trajectories that they they may take or may may find themselves on in, in the course of their care. I think collaborating with your palliative care physician, have, sitting down and having a meeting with them, telling them what it is that you can offer for the patient, telling them that you're ready to treat a patient, not necessarily with the goals of reducing aspiration or even increasing the efficiency with which they're taking nutrition to really focus on what is it that the patient is enjoying most and how can you help maybe enhance that enjoyment with their intake. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Meredith. This was wonderful. Thank you, Teresa, so much for having me on. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.